about the most impressive person I've ever met. Um, it's not hard to be attracted to someone who's so impressive. When Jesus came on the earth, he came with a presence and he still has that presence. Sometimes you imagine him walking up and standing here and you just want to know what he wants to do. And if, if that were the case today, if we had a sense that, that Jesus was standing right there, how would that change what we were about to do or what we're about to hear? Uh, he is that person. He is royalty, the royalty of heaven. He commands our attention. And the thing is, when he sees into us, he sees into us with love. Such love, so much pure, adora like, not adoration, but it just, he doesn't look at us with criticism. He looks at us inside with love and acceptance and forgiveness and you're embraced by him. It's not hard to have a sense that I want to follow him. That's what I'd like to talk about today. Could you turn with me to Luke chapter 9? And one of the first things you're going to see is that I didn't put the verses on the screen. I'd, that's what I wanted to hear. And they said, got it. <laughs> so Luke chapter 9, I want to encourage us. There's a stage in our maturing where we need someone to help us find the Bible and find the places in the Bible. I would like to encourage us as a congregation that you bring your Bible. Either bring your paper version or bring your digital version, and I know you've all got a digital but bring a Bible and let's be students of that word so that we take it in, not just being fed by a spoon, but that we take in this word. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So Jesus gets his group of disciples into a little focus group and he's doing a market survey and he says to them, well, who do the crowds say that I am? There's a couple of responses. Verse 19. So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say one of the prophets has risen again. So there's thoughts. Is he a radical like John the Baptist? Did the crowd say that he was a great healer and motivator and preacher like Elijah, prophet? Is he like one of the old prophets? Over the passage of time, sometimes we have an impression of who Jesus is, but over the passage of time, things come in and our appreciation of who Jesus is may be starting to fade. And Jesus asks particularly to them, who do the crowds say that I am? And then in verse 21, no, um, in verse 
20. I'm glad somebody out there is reading their Bible. In actual fact, feel free to help me out any time during this message. <laughs> you can call out. Actually, I'd probably go better if I got a bit of help. <laughs> and he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, and he answered correctly, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Wonderful. Brilliant declaration. And he's right on the money. But Jesus takes that understanding that Peter had gained to this point, and then he steps it up a level. And in verse 21, we read, And he strictly warned them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So not only is he the Christ of God, but then Jesus gives them the full definition of what that's going to mean for him in this next stage. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by those who were the religious leaders who were waiting for the Messiah. He's going to be killed and he's going to be raised to life. Jesus is very clear about who he is and what he's about to do what his mission is, his identity. If you're clear about your identity, you're not fluid in all kinds of things like your purpose and what you need to achieve. Then he says to them, and this is where I think he moves the, the focus from, I know what I need to do, now in verse 23, I want to tell you what you need to know you've got to do. Then he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to desire to know Jesus more, think through what it means to deny yourself to take the focus off your self-interests. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and the mission that Jesus has given you and follow him. This is an iteration of the first time that Jesus called his disciples back in Matthew chapter 4. This isn't a good one, it's not on the screen because now you have to wait for me. <laughs> so, Russ, I'm just giving you the tip, yeah. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 19, and he said, oh, well, let's start at 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me was the call. I will make you is the change that he's going to bring into them to their lives. When Jesus calls, he calls so that he can also change you and then I'll make you a fisher of men or change it, your purpose, give you the purpose or the will of God. He will help us discover God's will. If I was using a more modern example rather than fishermen, 
I'd probably have, you know, the Stargate big circle thing? And it's sort of pulsing. <laughs> and through there is the will of God. If I want to step through that, Jesus is saying, come, come follow me. Step through the portal into the will of God. I will change you, but I'll give you your purpose in life. I'll give you God's purpose. Do you want to step through the portal? Yes, I do. And I think what's happened is by the time they get to chapter Luke chapter 9, they've been on the other side of God's purpose, but things happen and... Uh, Life has its impacts on you and you sometimes turn from being in the will of God and you get a little distracted or you lose the sense of the command of God. You lose the sense of who Jesus is. And he's calling them back. If you would want to continue to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So it doesn't matter if you became a Christian 30 years ago or you became a Christian yesterday. The call to follow Jesus is still current for each of us every day. Now, it doesn't have to be a voice on the beach. Come, follow me. It can be just being so impressed by his presence that you just want to follow and when we come to worship, I think that's what happens. We leave here of a Sunday and we go, oh, the presence of God was there. I just, you know, I'm inspired to keep following him and to keep putting him first in my life. In his time on earth, Jesus had many people following him as fans. But there is a call to come closer. And even one of our songs this morning, I noticed, was talking about him calling, calling. And I think that that call continues to come regularly. And sometimes it's good to sit alone with God and hear that call again. What am I here for? What's the purpose? What's God's will? What, would I, what does he want me to do? Who does he want me to be? Um, I was thinking about the, the Old Testament uh, calling and um, it wasn't a new idea when Jesus said to the disciples follow me because the, the, the rabbis of the time would also call their new disciples and say follow me it was a call and, and what I want to do in this next section is describe what it was like to be following a rabbi but the distinctive difference of what it means to follow Jesus so if you were to follow a rabbi, you'd be taking on their set of rules and their teaching upon you with the idea that one day you would be the rabbi and you would call disciples after you. That, the, um, the set of teachings that the rabbi had was called a yoke. I'm assuming everybody here knows what a yoke is. If you live in the country, you've probably seen the oxen tied together and that plank that goes over their shoulders. No, we live in the <laughs> no more Stargate, just back. 
Well, you know, there are young people here that probably, you know, still think that milk comes out of a carton, not out of a cow. <laughs> no, that's right. But the, 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 the idea behind a yoke is that you team two oxen together so that they pulled in harness in together so that the load is pulled evenly. Unless, of course, you're training a new oak, a, a new ox, which you tie into the oak, and the older one teaches the newer one how to move forward in synchronised weight pulling. The Jesus seems to be saying to, or observing, that the rabbis put a heavy load on their disciples and he is going, and I'm going to share this scripture in a minute, but he has a different kind of yoke. Now the yoke that they, the rabbis would give them is to memorise the teacher's words. So you had to memorise the rabbi's words. It was the job through oral transmission. So what would happen is that people would continually repeat the words and the students had to memorise them and learn them. That's probably how we got a lot of the New Testament today, through that oral tradition of repeating continually, the, in our case, the words of Jesus, to the point where they were written down and repeated and written down correctly. The second thing was to learn the teachers' traditions and interpretations. So it was their job to learn how the teacher kept the commands of God and the interpretation of Scripture. Every detail about the teacher was important. He needed to learn how the, the teacher washed his hands, how he kept the Sabbath, how he fasted, how he prayed, how he gave charity, how he said the blessing over the food, etc., etc. Um, furthermore, he needed to interpret the passages of Scripture and understand how the teacher interpreted them, the meanings that he was drawing out, the parables and the stories he used to illustrate them, the way he explained a verse or understood a concept. Each of these was of the utmost importance. So these details weren't trivial. They were like gems because he wanted to replicate the rabbi. So he wanted to memorise everything that he said and he wanted to interpret in the same way that the rabbi interpreted. And thirdly, he wanted to imitate their actions. His goal was to be one day just like his master. A disciple studied to learn and to act and to respond the same way his master would act and speak and respond. And Luke 6, chapter, uh, Luke 6, 40, I'll just say it. It says, every disciple fully trained will be like his master. So here we see three distinctives of a rabbi from the Old Testament. The fourth one was how he was to raise disciples. He was to create a generation of students who would then transmit to the next generation what the original master said so that they could teach the next generation. Passing it down generation to generation. It's sort of like a pyramid. 
You know those pyramid schemes. They sort of thrive on the ability for one person to pass down to the point where that they create another level which feeds that upper level. And so they create an expectation or a multiplication model. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever been in a disciple-making movement where it sort of came across a bit like that. There was an expectation that I will go and get a disciple and I will teach that disciple everything I know and then that disciple had to go and get a disciple. And I'd become the grandfather of that disciple, in a way. And they had to learn everything that I learned. And then you'd hope that they would teach the next generation. And 2 Timothy 2.2 is a verse that gets used in this context all the time. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be able to teach others also. So there's a sort of four-generational thing. Has anybody ever been caught, not, no, sorry, I shouldn't say caught up. Um, has anybody been in that kind of modelling? That's what I experienced when I first became a Christian. And so there was this expectation that I needed to go and find a disciple and I needed to make them a disciple like me. I had to be perfect because I was trying to pass on all that I understood about Jesus and, I, and there was an expectation that I had it figured out and I had something to pass on. The big difference I see with the way that Jesus discipled was there was always only one generation. Jesus showed me how to be a disciple. The others also, I'm, I'm with them, but they're responding to Jesus as a disciple. The faithful men who they're being given help or encouragement, but they're always a disciple of Jesus. We're not setting up pyramid schemes in church. We're actually helping people become followers of Jesus and keeping a personal and accountable relationship with him. From the scripture, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So my discipleship is about imitating Christ. And the context for Paul is he's saying, I've actually got a personal godliness and obedience with God. I want you to imitate me in that aspect of being godly and obedient to God. But I don't want you to become a disciple of me. I want you to become a disciple of Jesus. Remember, I was talking about yokes. Jesus said in Matthew 11, let's turn there. And verse 28. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's hard yoke or a heavy yoke, which comes through that model of being given a job to become like the person who's trying to show me how to follow their Messiah. Or there's the easy yoke, where I actually follow Jesus. And he, I'm harnessed to him. I'm not harnessed to my Bible study leader or my pastor at church or the elders. The yoke, the person I'm yoked with is Jesus. And I'm always in relationship with him. And he says he will help me have such a relationship. He'll help me grow in this with his easy yoke, with his easy teaching, with his way of communicating. I remember when um, I became a Christian, I transferred from Hobart back to Burnie and uh, joined a group called the Northwest Prayer Fellowship. And it was primarily a discipleship group. And we used to meet two times a week. Once was an early morning six o'clock prayer time and the other one was an evening Bible study and uh, worship and prayer. And the prayer times in the morning were great. We used to meet in small groups and we used to come and say, this is how I'd like to follow and keep Jesus central in my life this week. And we'd meet as a three or a four and we'd share these prayer points and then we'd pray for one another. And our, our, the idea was always, help pray with me on how I can follow Jesus. The, having an open and honest kind of relationship with a few people saying, help me. I want to pray that I will share my testimony at work today. Or I'm going to a party on Friday night. I'd really like to live in such a way as that someone would ask me, why, have I, why am I doing what I'm doing? Or... Um, there's a person who's sick and I've, I've just never had the, the courage to, to say something to them. Could you pray with me that I'll have the right word to pray or say so I can pray? So we used to meet in these small groups and pray. And so we were sharing how to imitate Jesus together. And I guess um, Matthew 28 is a great reminder that we're not here to make disciples of ourselves in another person. It says, go and make disciples of all the world. It's not actually, um, that's a great commission, the, the great commission. The whole world is to be discipled. Then he says, Matthew 28, let's turn there, so you don't just go by my memory, which has failed me. What's that? Yes, verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always.
teaching how I have been able to observe all the things that God has taught me is an encouragement to you. Or if you're learning how God how God has been teaching, if I learn, sorry, you're having a relationship with God, you're learning how to obey him and sharing that with me encourages me as well. That's what happens this morning when we have the microphone. We have people coming up and saying, this is how I learned to obey God or this is what happened which inspired me to keep following him. But it's not. But it's not a system. We're not trying. To, it's not. It's not trying to set up a system by which people become disciples of leaders, but disciples of Jesus. Can we turn to John chapter fifteen? I, um, for some reason, and I've been in this preparation for this message for weeks but John 15 keeps coming back to me as a part a, a, a one of the best uh, illustrations of how to carry that easy yoke with Jesus I looked at a whole bunch of different illustrations and they seem to be chairs and wheels and all these things that try to communicate what a disciple is they're all inanimate. And I was saying, Jesus, what, how, what illustration should I use to talk about how to be a disciple and follow you? And he turned my attention to John chapter 15. You know why? He was the master communicator. There was no teacher that ever taught like Jesus. When he taught, it was because he had the best way of communicating his truths. So let's turn to John chapter 15. Ooh, okay. I did a reprieve with Chloe before I said, some people won't have a Bible. We better put some of it up. <laughs> I am the vine, and my father is the vine keeper, or the vine dresser, the gardener. The first thing is the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. We have been given an opportunity to see into the, the relationship between the Father and the Son. They're connected. They're, you can't tell where the roots finish and the, the vine starts. Like the, the Father is the vine dresser. He knows the best way to make something prosper and grow. There's Jesus, the vine. The product of the vine is the fruit. And in between is the branches. When Jesus came, his relationship, the, the connection between the Father and the Son was so evident that there was fruit out of it all the time. But we get the privilege of being the branch between the Father, the Son and the fruit in the, on the earth today. We get the opportunity to show the fruit of a relationship with Jesus. And he says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. God always prunes. Have you ever felt that? 
Ever felt that God's been pruning? But he doesn't prune as punishment. He prunes for productivity. He prunes for growth. He prunes to help us. So if you're in a stage or a phase where you're feeling like something is happening around your life and it's, you know, what's God doing is the pruning because he wants to do more with your life. He wants to bring more of the kingdom and more of, the, of the, the God's will into your life. There is an expectation that there will be fruit. Something of his nature will be evident in our lives if we're connected with the, the vine. Something will be evident. There will be fruit. Especially where his spirit is presiding. His pruning brings more of his fruit. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The vine dresser, the father, is making sure that there is no disease. He's making sure that the vine is nourished. He's making sure that um, we're pruned, the vine is pruned. In all the ways, the father is looking after life. He's speaking life. And he made them clean. He says, well, you're already clean because I've spoken the truths to your lives. I've already cleaned you. I've already connected you to me. Jesus is saying, I've already cleaned you. You're in me. My life is already flowing into you, toward you. You're clean because I speak to you. I think that's one thing that happens when you sit alone with God. Whenever he speaks to you, you feel clean. You don't feel punished. You don't feel criticised. You don't feel intimidated. You feel clean. He's such a wonderful God. He's the most impressive person I've ever met. Verse 4, going on again about disconnection. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. A disconnected branch doesn't bear fruit. A disconnected person is not a Christian. You can't fake the life of God. You can't fake the life of God because it, it's, it comes out of him. And the reason why I know that is verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Uh, earlier in, in John's gospel, Jesus said that he only did what the Father gave him to do. And here he's saying, well, now the same for you. You can only do what the Father wants you to do if you stay in me. The sap from Jesus brings life. Maybe we could write a song about that. The sap. We can't. we can't do life without the life of Jesus, the sap that flows into our lives from him. We can't do spiritual fruit without it. Verse 6.
Sorry, I just found my fingers wrapped in a guitar string thing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they are gathered and thrown into the fire, and they are burned. Abiding Christians remain in God forever, but disconnected people who are not Christians are lost forever. The Father takes them away. And I think that was the audience that was standing around Jesus at this time. There are those who are standing there thinking, well, I'm okay because I'm righteous because of Abraham, or I'm okay because my, per- my family have always gone to church, or I'm okay because... And all the different reasons why people might believe that they're good enough to go to heaven. And Jesus says, no, no, if you're not connected to the vine, I'm sorry. But the Father's going to take you away at the end and you won't be with him in eternity. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. The thing about abiding is, our, what we want changes because what God wants is flowing into us. And more and more as we spend time in his presence, what he wants is becoming more of what I want. And then when I, what I, when I pray what he wants, I see answered prayer because I'm actually asking the desires that he's already got that have flowed into my life. So it's, there's a lot of mystery around answered prayer. But the key is, abide in him. Abide in him. And you will find that your desires will become his desires. And your life will become like his life. Verse 8. And I think this is a great summary of what we're trying to say today, or what I'm trying to say today. Abiding brings glory to God. And the fruit of that abiding shows that we're a disciple. The fruit shows that we're a disciple. One of the fruits, Jesus said, is love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will show myself to him. I wonder if we could stand and we'll, we'll come to an end. I've been hoping that today it's not my words but what the Spirit carries into your life from the reading of his word. That his word is so potent, the Holy Spirit brings and plants it into our lives. There was an invitation in this reading in John chapter 15 to an abiding relationship. Is there anyone here that would like to have that abiding relationship with Jesus? There was an invitation in Luke chapter 9 that if you wanted to follow Jesus, you might think about turning from your self-interests to his interests and deny yourself, take up his cross and follow him. Would you just close your eyes for a moment? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said, Come, follow me, and I will make you into what I want to make you into. Come, follow me. 
Does anyone here want to start an abiding relationship with Jesus or start following Jesus for the first time? Do you want to just give me a show of hands? If you'd like to start a relationship with Jesus, if you'd like to abide in that relationship, if you'd like to come back to that relationship and abide afresh in that relationship. Jesus, I want to thank you for your presence here today. I want to thank you that you are the most glorious person we could ever meet. You are the king of heaven and you are the king who has appeared on earth. You are wonderful to behold. We praise you and glorify you. We want to follow you with our lives. Thank you for the invitation to come into relationship with you and that you want to abide inside us and that we can abide in you. Lord God, have your way. Lord, today we say we want to follow you. We want to follow you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.